0: Welcome back, Culture by Design listeners. It's Freddie, one of the producers of the podcast. Last week, Tim and Jr. covered the first five practical steps for effectively challenging the status quo. Today, they'll be wrapping up with the final five tips, including bringing credibility, knowing your boss, framing dissent as exploration, and using data to support your case. Challenging the status quo and speaking up is not just about bravery, it's about skill how you approach the conversation is just as, if not more important than, how often you attempt to challenge. This episode is based off Tim's most recent Harvard Business Review article and is part two of this two-part series. As always, you can find this episode's show notes along with links to part one of this series and the Harvard Business Review article mentioned in our show notes at leaderfactor.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. And enjoy today's episode on How to Challenge the Status Quo, Part 2.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Culture by Design. I'm Junior, here with my co-host, Dr. Tim Clark. And today, we'll be discussing How to Challenge the Status Quo, Part 2. Tim, how you doing?
2: Doing great. Looking forward to Part 2.
1: Part 1 was pretty good, if I do say so myself.
2: Yeah. It's a lot to think about, isn't it?
1: I thought it was a pretty good con- <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good conversation. Yeah, listening back, I think that there was a lot of meat in there. So, if you have not had a chance to listen to part 1, would highly recommend that you do that. We talked last week about five practical things that we can do to increase our chances of success if we're the ones doing the challenging. In the past, you've heard us talk a lot about creating an environment conducive to challenging the status quo. But if you're the one raising your hand and speaking up, what might you do to increase your chances of success? And we talked about the premise of why is this difficult? Why is it difficult to challenge the status quo? Because we are criticizing the institution. The person that we're talking to may have helped build the status quo. It's personal. It's emotional. It's a very human thing. So today we're going to cover the last five steps that we can take. We've talked steps one through five. Now we're going to go six through 10. Tim, what setup would you like to go through as we jump in today?
2: Well, I think as we said last time, Junior, this is not just uh, when we're challenging a status quo. the The assumption is this is not a bunch of rational actors getting together to debate an issue on its merits and that if you bring the data and the logic, then you're good to go. That's not how it works. So we talked about the fact that that data and logic is going to be wrapped in emotion, in self-interest, in reputation, in status, in incentives. All of those things are at play here. And this gets, uh, more complicated, and it requires not only courage, as you said, Junior, last time, but it requires skill. And we're focusing on the skill side of things today as we do part two, and we have five more concrete suggestions to offer up. So let's do two minutes of summary,
1: and then we'll jump into the behaviors. The first bullet point of summary is that innovation requires deviation. And it begins with at least a, a very small dose of constructive dissent that shakes up the system. If you don't have that dissent, even in small doses, you're not going to have any deviation. And when there's no deviation, there's no innovation. And we, we followed that through the train of consequences. What does that mean? Without innovation, there's no progress, there's no useful change. And so for humanity at large, that means that things don't get better. And so innovation is a truly important thing for humanity. Now, for organizations, that means that they will live shorter lives with unhappier people. That's what we said will be the tragic end of the organization if there is no deviation and no innovation. So that all seems well and good. It seems quite clear. So if innovation requires deviation, then why don't we get more deviation? Because challenging the status quo is personal, as we said. In some cases, when you challenge, you're actually challenging another person's reputation, maybe their sense of themselves. We said that threatening the edifice threatens those who built and sustain it. You could bruise egos, reveal poor performance, redistribute power, or upend hierarchy. You probably will. And you said, at a minimum, the business of challenging the status quo calls into play context, personalities, and self-interest. So with that context, let's go through the first five behaviors that we mentioned last time. We said, anticipate the opportunity, ask for permission, begin with inquiry, not advocacy, model emotional intelligence, and demonstrate a grasp of the past. So with that, let's go ahead and move into behavior six. What do you want to say as we go into behavior six, Tim?
2: Well, I... I just want to underscore the point, Junior, again that this is a very vulnerable behavior. It's very high stakes, and when we say challenging the status quo, what are we really trying to do? We're trying to gain access. We're trying to influence. We're trying to have a voice. And I, before we get into suggestion number six, I, I want, I want for listeners to think about this on a. Sp- on a spectrum that runs from, so think about this, at one end of the spectrum, you have conflict. At the other end of the spectrum, you have conformity. And in the middle of the spectrum, you have cohesiveness. Anyone that's ever studied organizational performance, organizational behavior, team performance, we always talk about the fact that the team needs to have, there needs to be team cohesion. That means that the members of the team, they coalesce, they come together and they're able to work together in a productive way as they collaborate, as they share. That's in the middle of the spectrum. At both ends of that spectrum, the conflict end and also the conformity end on the other side, those are both danger zones. So think about that. If, if there's too much conflict, what happens? The process falls apart. The team descends into chaos, we can't get anything done. So the conflict immobilizes us and it destroys us. That's what that's what deep and pervasive conflict does to an organization or a team. On the other end, if we go all the way to conformity, that's a danger zone too. What, what is the danger associated with conformity? Junior, do you have a thought on that? You've seen this, right?
1: Yeah, conformity is pernicious. And I think that it's bad for two reasons. Well, probably more than two. I'll give two. If we don't have deviation, what do we have? We have conformity. So in the absence of deviation lives conformity. Now, if deviation is necessary for innovation, and we don't have it, and we live exclusively inside conformity, then there is no progress. So competitively, it's dangerous because we cannot compete over a long time horizon. Eventually, we'll be beaten because change is inevitable. The ground will move beneath our feet. And if we stay stagnant, someone else will come and eat away that competitive advantage that we might enjoy today. So that's reason number one. It's dangerous competitively. Now, two, and this one may seem a little esoteric. It's dangerous to the human. What do I mean by that? It's dangerous at a personal level. Humans have a need to contribute, and they have a need to make things better. Now, deviation often means making things better, or rather making things better requires deviation. And so conformity at the personal level means that you don't get a chance to make things better, and that will eat away at you you won't progress, you will stagnate. And that's not going to be healthy for anyone. And so this idea of a spectrum is very interesting to me at a personal level. Each of us falls somewhere on this spectrum and it may be that we need to move left toward center or right toward center, depending on what our tendencies are. We may need to lean a little bit away from conflict or we may need to lean away from conformity and move to cohesiveness. So those are the two reasons I think conformity is dangerous at a personal level and a competitive level.
2: No, I agree. I think about the dangers of group think. Think about what happens when there's enormous pressure to comply, to be compliant. What does that translate into? It translates into suppressing your own disagreement, your own dissent your own ideas about what needs to change and what needs to happen to move us forward so you can see the the pathology and the danger associated with compliance at the one hand, uh, on the one hand and then the the deep and dysfunctional conflict at the other so what what we're striving for is cohesiveness but cohesiveness does not mean Uh, that we're complying, that we are creating this atmosphere of groupthink. It means that we're open to constructive dissent, to creative abrasion, to uh, challenging each other. It's not easy to get there, but that's the setup, Junior.
1: Yeah. And I, I do believe that you can't be fulfilled or satisfied as a human if you keep beating down that voice that says that things could be better and that you have something to say. And I think that that really does have organizational competitive implications. It's not just this nice thing. I really do believe that that must be true in order for organizations to be better. So with that being said, let's jump into behavior number six. Be transparent about potential unintended consequences. So this one's interesting. If you're proposing a different course of action... You bear the burden of proof to explain how your proposal will make things better, and this means being very candid about the risks. It doesn't mean leaning exclusively into the bright horizon that awaits if you go down this path. You have to acknowledge the things that could happen that aren't so good,
2: especially or even if they're unintended. That's true, Junior. And I think what happens is, and this is a trap that we often fall into. We are we have a point of view. We may be challenging the status quo. We have a we we have a a alternative opinion course of action that we would like to advocate. And what do we focus on? The tendency, the instinct, is to focus on all of the good things that will happen based on our our view. So we would call that first order intended consequences and this is the bear trap. When we advocate a point of view or a line of thinking or a course of action, it's very easy to get caught into the trap of advocating solely for and in behalf of those first order intended consequences. In other words, if we do this, these are all the good things that are going to happen. These are all the benefits Two things are wrong with that. Number one, we're not thinking beyond first-order consequences. When we need to think into second and third-order consequences, we need to think through the, the the train of consequences far into the future. Right. Number two, we are not giving uh, we're not giving the the attention and the time. And we're not really even being honest with a full disclosure about potential unintended consequences. And that's what, that's, now think about how important this is because if I come to the organization and I'm challenging the status quo, what do people want to know about me before I even put uh, an idea on the table? They want to know that they can trust not only my analysis, but my motive. So it's, imp- it's, it's imperative for me to show, to demonstrate that I have no ulterior motive, that I have no selfish agenda, that I am an honest broker, that I'm a fiduciary, that I'm managing risk, that I'm looking after everyone, that I'm acting in good faith. That's my job. How can I do that job if I'm not open and transparent about potential unintended consequences, if I advocate for a point of view, if I challenge the status quo, but I'm very honest and open and, and objective and dispassionate about the potential unintended consequences, this could go wrong, this could happen, it, it, it builds my credibility And people believe that I'm coming as an honest broker. But a lot of times we don't do that. We're not open and honest and forthcoming about all of the potential unintended consequences. And that's where we've got to do better. Would you agree, Junior?
1: Absolutely. One of the most effective ways to do this is to steel man the other side. And so what you might say to show that you've done your homework and that you are coming as an honest broker is to say something like, hey, look, I've, I've considered this from a few different angles, and here's where I think my argument is weakest. If I were to argue this from the other side, I think these are the main two or three things that would come to mind. You lay out your assumptions, and this is useful for everybody because if it, does go or doesn't go according to plan, you have something to look back on and analyze and say, oh, this was the assumption that we made that turned out to be incorrect. Or this argument against our plan of action actually was a pretty good one. And here's why. And it was based on this assumption, which turned out to be true or turned out to be not true. And so steel manning the other side and coming at it from different angles, trying to attack the problem from multiple sides allows you to come in a really dispassionate way that other people see. They see that very clearly and it depersonalizes the argument because they see, okay, this isn't your reputation that you're arguing, right? This isn't your sense of self. You seem to have detached your sense of self enough from the problem to see it from these different angles, and that invites better collaboration from them because now they don't feel like they have to tiptoe around your feelings about the subject. They'll say, well, okay, this is a strong argument. This is a little weak. I'm going to take issue with this assumption, and we can move forward with some pragmatism in a scenario where
2: maybe otherwise there wouldn't be much. Junior, you know what I often see here is I see when, when someone challenges the status quo, especially a confident person, a, a capable person, often they will, they'll advocate and they'll bring in emotion to the point that they turn their point of view into hype and promotion. And they focus solely on first order intended consequences as if they were facts in evidence already. Hey, if we do this, this is what's going to happen. Like, it's not even a question, right? It's, it's, there's no argument about what's going to happen. No, that's not true. But they speak as if the assumptions are facts and they're not. And so that's a bit, of, that's a form of, that can be a form of manipulation. And when you do that, when you're trying to challenge the status quo, you, that, that is, that is not going to help your case over the long run. So so I love what you said. Lay out your your assumptions clearly. It's a candid, what is this? This is a candid disclosure of risk that has the has the effect of creating trust with all of your stakeholders. You owe that to them anyway, because you your part of your job is to prudently manage risk. You're a fiduciary. And as an aside,
1: if you've been given or have developed those gifts of energy and charisma and influence, you got to be careful with those because you could turn the table using just those tools and that can come back to bite you. And so I like the way that you put that, that it can be a form of manipulation if we're not careful. We need to pay attention to that. And on the other side, you know, if if you're part of a conversation in which someone else is behaving that way, uh, see that for what it is, and you may have to press on the issue a little bit to peel back the energy, to peel back the charisma, and have a real, honest conversation about the facts.
2: Mm-hmm. I agree.
1: Okay, that's number six. Number seven, bring credibility. This is one of my favorites as a matter of principle, every employee should have participation rights. They should be encouraged to challenge the status quo. And that's nice in theory, but we work with organizations. We know that this is not always the case. What percentage of organizations have truly embedded the obligation of dissent? Not all. It's less than 100. And so if the obligation of dissent isn't embedded, what tools do you have available to you? So remember, we're having this conversation in the context of you being the one doing the challenging. So if that, if those participation rights are not embedded in the organization, then what can you do to increase your chance of success? Bring credibility. What do you have available to you? You have competence available to you. You have skill available to you. With that competence comes credibility. So that's the mechanism that we're talking about right now, is that developing credibility inside the organization will enable you to challenge the status quo more effectively. What do you think about this one, Tim?
2: I think that, as we said, or you said earlier, Junior, to challenge the status quo is to challenge the edifice and those who built that edifice. And often we underestimate the the task. It's a monumental task to dislodge the status quo and, and to, to try to change that. I'll give you an example. So years ago, I read a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. He's a historian of science. And he talks about the way that science evolves and changes and how a new theory can replace an old theory and what what that requires? It's basically the social psychology of science and the advancement of science. And in that book, he talks about how an advance in science is really it's inherently subversive. Now well, think about that. It's it's subversive to current theory, but he says more important than that. Yes, it subverts current theory, but more importantly it subverts existing commitments mm. to that theory that surround that theory that have grown up around that theory what what commitments are we ta- are we talking about we're talking about people's reputations we're talking about their status and their station we're talking about their relationships we're talking about the entire incentive structure is built On the status quo. And so if it's, if it's a, if it's a current theory that represents the status quo, so you can see how difficult that is. There's an adage that's related to this, Junior, that is, is very interesting. And the adage says this, how does physics progress? Think about physics, that that branch of science. How does physics progress one funeral at a time? What does that mean? We have to wait for the physicists to die that embrace uh, a current theory so that it, it it gives way and it gives space for the new theory to come in. So how does physics? how does physics progress? One funeral at a time. That shows us how intractable and entrenched the status quo becomes.
1: That's fascinating. The idea of existing commitments being potentially even more important than the current theory. So we have to believe that the earth is flat for one more generation.
2: <laughs> That's right. Right? Yeah.
1: It it makes me think about the idea and strategy, creative destruction. Mm-hmm. I think that it's similar, that in order for us to move towards something better in that act of creativity, we're destroying something. We are. So it is zero sum in that we can only commit to certain things. We can't commit to the idea that the world is round and also commit to the idea that it's flat at the same time. One of those things can't be true. They're mutually exclusive. And so it would require that we rescind the original commitment. And then comes the question, how willing are people to rescind their original commitment? often not very, but they're more likely to do that when your believability index is high. Let me tell you what I mean. So believability. If someone comes to the table and says, this is what I think we should do, you have two choices. You can listen and go along, or you can reject. The likelihood that you go along improves if that person's believability is high. Think about it this way. Are you more likely to take golf advice from Tiger Woods or from Elvis? Tiger Woods, right? Would you take stage advice from Tiger Woods or Elvis? Elvis. Context matters. And so you will have more credibility in your domain of expertise. So you need to understand that what is your personal believability index as it relates to the question at hand? If it is inside your domain of expertise, you can understand that your believability is going to be higher and even higher still if you've got a demonstrated track record of performance and of good decision-making. And on the flip side, you need to recognize when you are out of your domain of expertise. Your believability will be lower, all the more reason to lead with inquiry. So I've been thinking about this point quite a bit in preparation for this conversation, and credibility is such an interesting piece of this whole thing. So what are the things that you might do to bring credibility? Well, you need to understand where you are relative to your domain of expertise. That will inform the way that you position your argument if it's more advocacy, if it's more inquiry, because you may not have all of the information, especially if you're outside. And what does your track record look like? So on and so forth. All of that goes into the calculus that will determine your believability in that situation. So we need to pay attention to that. The simplest way to put it is if you want to be more credible, get better. The more skilled you are, the more believable
2: you will be. And junior, let's not forget that sometimes, it, in spite of everything you do and can do, you may not have enough enough credibility to pull it off. To be able to uh, create a coalition of the willing to initiate change and lead change, yep. so you you need to go borrow some. And that's a legitimate principle to borrow credibility from others, right? There's there's nominal credibility. You borrow people, people's names, their expertise, their reputation, things like that. So, so we need to acknowledge that you may find yourself in a situation where you can't do it by yourself. You need some help.
1: And we talked a little bit about it last time, um, but you can buttress your believability with data, which we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. So here's the next one, behavior eight. Know your boss. Understand your boss's personality, her biases, preferences, and goals. You can be right in your comments, but wrong in the approach. So the whole premise of this idea is that we're interacting with humans. There's a lot of variation as we go human to human. Personalities change. Biases change. Preferences change. Goals change. Incentive structure. Those are all variables that are changing person to person. So it would follow that our approach must change person to person. Now, you specifically put know your boss, Tim. So help me understand, why did you choose that language, know your boss?
2: Well, this is where it gets personal. And what you don't want to do in challenging the status quo is collide with your boss. Uh, When it comes to ego, when it comes to Making your boss feel vulnerable or at risk. That's just not a smart thing to do. Give you an example. So I, I, I knew an executive who could not tolerate being challenged in a public setting. And uh, one of his direct reports was convinced that several metrics in the KPI dashboard, right? So just envision this. You've got an executive team. And they have an executive dashboard of KPIs, the metrics they track for performance. And what does the direct report do? Challenges the executive in the room in a meeting saying, uh, I think this dashboard needs to change. And these KPIs right here, they are no longer useful and they should be eliminated. So that's just not a smart move to surprise uh, the boss and challenge the boss in a public forum with that kind of blunt advice when you know that that particular personality does not do well with that in a public setting. So in that instance, for example, the challenger was right in his challenge, but wrong in his approach. You got to know your boss.
1: So there's an element of tact here, and there's an element of timing. I think part of what goes along with Know Your Boss is understand the timeline and play the long game, because if you're always playing the short game, then you'll probably always make that comment, and it may not be the most tactful way to go about it. We're not saying suppress what you have to say, but we can all agree that it's in no one's best interest to say everything that they think all the time to everyone, right? Now, if we can agree on that, then we all agree that there is a time and a place and there's a smarter way to go about giving feedback than just being blunt and transparent about everything you do all the time. And so, I I can see the potential of someone taking issue with this and saying, well, no, we have an obligation to dissent. We have to say what we think. I agree. But there is a better way to do it and a worse way to do it. And We need to acknowledge the people in the room, the personalities that exist, the incentive structures, and maybe that will affect our timing. Maybe that will affect our delivery a little bit. Maybe it has to wait an hour. Maybe it's a conversation behind closed doors instead of in public. So we have to be smart about these things. And if just well, truly Go ahead. Go ahead. Junior. Finish. Finish your well, thought. If you truly want to move the needle, you have to take that into consideration and play the long game and do things the smart way.
2: Yeah, you know, I was just going to say, a couple of questions that you can ask would be: Are if, if you're thinking about challenging, it are they talking about the topic that you're? Do you want to challenge this? status quo about is there a sense of urgency about it or no not at all right just some of these contextual factors and then some other questions that we should all be asking to to know our boss better Uh, for example we could ask when when does your boss get defensive or territorial do they invite challenge or dissent does your boss invite challenge or dissent or not um how willing is your boss to be wrong? H- how does your boss handle bad news? How emotional or unflappable is your boss? How entrenched in the status quo is your boss? These are a few diagnostic questions that helps helps us understand our bosses, and this is a critical factor in the entire equation.
1: And you can ask those questions about anyone with whom you interact, and those answers are going to be informative, and they're probably going to change your approach. So that's number eight. Know your boss. Number nine, frame dissent as exploration. Even if you think you have the perfect solution, the perfect fix uh, to enhance the status quo, be careful in the way that you frame the dissent. So think, for example, about the natural response to curiosity compared to contradiction. What is that difference? Tim, maybe you could go into a little bit about that. I think that those two words are fascinating. I'm glad you used them. Curiosity and contradiction. It helped me well, understand.
2: Well, just, yeah, think about the emotion, think about the connotation that surrounds the word curiosity in the first place. When I say curiosity, how do you feel about that? What What is the tone of the word itself? What is the what is the emotion of the word itself? Curiosity. Is it positive? Is it negative? It's pretty positive, isn't it? It's optimistic. It's hopeful. It's, it's future-oriented. So just think about the tone and the emotion of that word curiosity. Now let's think about the tone and the emotion of the word contradiction. It's different. Can you feel that? It's got a hard edge to it contradiction contradiction it's close to confrontation right it's so it's it's stern it's um it's all it's it's corrective it's uh what other words would you use junior what what comes to mind when we say contradiction emotion
1: i think it's heavier curiosity to me seems playful there's an element of play in curiosity that I think is is really interesting. Contradiction it seems like a lose lose. You don't often walk away net positive in a contradiction. Um, curiosity seems gentle. Uh, those are some words that come to mind.
2: Yeah, yeah. For me, contradiction also conjures up the the this this. Image of of polarization and competitiveness and an adversarial setting, right? So what we're saying, frame descent is exploration. So curiosity compared to contradiction, because that contradiction that when you're contradicted, it can trigger a fear response it can spike negative emotion. It can thrust you into a a fight or flight mode. There's a big difference. We don't want that kind of environment if we're challenging the status quo. That means we're putting everyone on the defense already. The walls are going up and and we're going to try and challenge the status quo. That's not what we want. We want different terms of engagement.
1: Yeah. You don't want to elicit fight or flight in other people when you're bringing in your feedback. You don't want to spike negative emotion. So You can think about the times where you've been on the receiving end of a really hefty contradiction, how do you feel about that? And how likely are you to hear the person through dispassionately? Not likely. Whereas, remember the last time someone came with true curiosity to learn something about something? How was your orientation toward that person? Probably very responsive, probably very helpful. How can you turn away someone who's purely trying to be curious? It's hard to do. So there are some things that you can do to help. Here are some examples of statements. I'd really like to learn more about this. Can you help me understand? Or I'm curious, what do we think the data is telling us? Or how might we think about this a different way? If we were to argue the other side, what do you think someone would say? And in doing this, you're showing your own cognitive flexibility. If you use this language as it relates to your own point of view, and you're challenging yourself out loud, people will respond to that. They'll start to see you as a curious person rather than dogmatic. They'll be more willing to join that venture with you. They'll be willing to go and do the exploration with you they'll become more curious too because we've shown that curiosity is valuable. You've been curious. Let me be curious too. Let's be curious together and go learn about what it is in front of us.
2: Yeah. I think what we're trying to do here, Junior, we, we make the distinction between intellectual friction and social friction a lot. That's a frame that we use all the time. And the reason we do is that we know that When the intellectual friction rises, the social friction has a a tendency to rise at the same time. And that's a big problem because the social friction is the mortal enemy of the intellectual friction. And we don't want that to happen. So the point of framing dissent as exploration is to arrest the social friction, enlisting others in that Joint discovery and that curiosity and that expedition where we go together. Well, that's the way that you do that. That's the way that you arrest the social friction, but you continue to keep the intellectual friction up because it's not adversarial. We're not pitting ourselves against each other. We're, we are engaged in, as you said, joint discovery. We're, we're exploring together. That's a very different thing. So we're not head to head. Right, we're not colliding. We are together. We're working in parallel. So it's a very different posture that we're trying to achieve.
1: Let's move to number ten. Use data. Data has an interesting power. It has the power to depersonalize and de-risk, challenging the status quo. So the first thing that we're going to want to look for is compelling quantitative data to make the case. If we have that, excellent, use it. If you don't, we then move down the data hierarchy. So do you have meaningful qualitative data? Yes, okay, use it. If you don't, then what do we do? We move down again to less reliable anecdotal data. If we don't have that, you're down to impressionistic data or what we might call just a hunch. Now, here's what I think is probably the most important part of this. Call the data what it is if you have compelling quantitative data, call it that. If you don't, if you just have a hunch, call it a hunch. Why? We want to be transparent about this. We want to not just be right, we want to make the right decision given the context. And so it's important for our own sake to lean on the data appropriately so that we can defend our own position. Because if we disregard the data, we get emotional, we forge ahead, we make a decision, and we align the organization behind us through force, and it turns out to be the wrong thing, bad day, bad news. So part of this idea, Tim, is that all the categories of the data that we mentioned, the the quantitative, the qualitative, are admissible, right? But do you think that it's also important that we call it what it is?
2: Absolutely, because it ties to what you're asking for what what is your ask right so if you're low on evidence no quantitative data you don't even have good qualitative data we keep going down impressionistic we go all the way down so now we're at gut so if you're low on evidence and you're high on gut what are you going to ask for so so your ask needs to be to some degree proportionate with the evidence that you're able to marshal so if you don't have anything but a hunch or it's gut instinct that you bring to the table, that's that's totally fine. But then let's make a request that is appropriate based on your argument, based on the logic and the data that you're bringing. So then what would you be asking for in this case? You would be asking for an opportunity to test your hypothesis. You're not asking for radical organizational change. You don't have a platform for that. You don't have the evidence for that, but you do have a legitimate right to ask to be able to do an experiment or a trial or a pilot based on your hunch or your gut instinct. So do you see how that goes together? If, yeah. if you're asking for just a an opportunity to test your hypothesis, that's reasonable. And by the way, how would you normally feel as a leader if you had a member of your team come to you and say, hey, this is what what I think. Here's why. I don't have a lot of hard evidence to support that right now, but I would like to test this hypothesis. How are you going to feel about that? You're going to say, I have a, an employee, I have a team member that's taking the initiative, that's doing analysis, that cares, and that employee wants to confirm or disconfirm a hypothesis. Yes, let's, let's do it. That's how I would feel. Yep. How are you going to say no to that?
1: And on the flip side, think about a time where you may have been on the receiving end of someone who came on a crusade with nothing but a hunch. What happens to your perception of credibility? There you go. Right? It goes way down. And so each of us has to be very careful about this one. And I love the way that you framed it, Tim, is make the ask proportionate to the data you can marshal. Amazing. So if it's a hunch, call it a hunch, run a hypothesis. If you have hard quantitative data, that justifies a sizable organizational change, make the case, right? And use the data
2: and debate it on its merits. Well, as you said, Junior, don't don't crusade on a hunch. Yeah. Bad idea. <laughs> bad idea. Bad idea. Yeah. And then think about what that does to your credibility. Right? Do you see how these these we've gone through these 10 suggestions now, Junior? Think about how they are interconnected, how they influence each other yeah you you have to
1: come to terms with and acknowledge openly your own ignorance and i think that that is an important point that pulls through all of this is being open and honest about where we are and what we know and what we're looking at because when we do that dispassionately and we lay the issue out on the table and we come with honesty and authenticity, and pure motive, we're going to be able to work through things together. People feel that intent that you bring, and I think that that uh, may be understated. So that's number 10, bring data. So we've gone through all of them, one through 10, and I think we've had a pretty good conversation today about these final five. So let's summarize and go through all 10. Number one, anticipate the opportunity. Number two, ask for permission. Three, begin with inquiry, not advocacy. Four, model emotional intelligence. Five, demonstrate a grasp of the past. Six, be transparent about intended and unintended consequences. Seven, bring credibility. Eight, know your boss. Nine, frame dissent as exploration. And 10, use data. So if we don't do those 10 things well, as the challenger, The risk goes down and your chances of influence and your chances of success go up. I've thoroughly enjoyed these last two episodes. I think we've got a lot of meat in here. I think there's a lot to learn. I know for me, I've been reflecting on my own behavior, my own leadership, my own style. I've got some strengths. I've got some liabilities. We all do. And inside one of these 10 lie opportunities for each of us to take advantage of. And so I think we first start with humility and bring some awareness to look at those 10 and say, which, which of these can I do better? And then go and improve those things. Tim, what are you thinking at the end of this two-part series?
2: Well, we began with the premise that challenging the status quo includes both skill and will. It's a function of both. And we've focused our attention during these last two ep- episodes on the skill side of the ledger, which makes a lot of sense uh, because even if you have a lot of courage and willingness to take on this the chal- the, and challenge the status quo, you've got to develop the skill to be able to do it. And so this becomes an applied discipline. And uh, I'm just really glad that we've been able to do these two episodes, Junior. I think they're practical. And I think that I keep reflecting as you do on how I do this and what my strengths and weaknesses are when it comes to challenging the status quo. And I come to the inevitable conclusion that I've got work to do (laughs) to get better.
1: Yeah, we all do. And that's our invitation. So thank you everyone for your time, your attention. We appreciate your listenership very much. If you liked today's episode, please leave a review and share it with a friend. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
0: Hey, Culture by Design listeners, this is the end of today's episode. You can find all the important links from today's episode at leaderfactor.com forward slash podcast. And if you found today's episode helpful and useful in any way, please share with a friend and leave a review. If you'd like to learn more about Leader Factor and what we do, then please visit us at leaderfactor.com. Lastly, if you'd like to give any feedback to the Culture by Design podcast or even request a topic from Tim and Junior, then reach out to us at info at leaderfactor.com or find and tag us on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening and making culture something you do by design, not by default.